This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, At the end of the year, we were studying the seven churches in the book of Revelation that we find in chapters 2 and 3, and the letters that Jesus sent to them. And so we're just picking right back up with that, and then we will next week finish that, finish the seven letters, and then... For the new year, we are going to thought, where will people be thinking in January? So we're going to do several sermons on the scripture uh, and talk specifically about, uh, you know, starting a pattern of perhaps Bible intake, Bible reading at the first of the year. So hopefully, hopefully help with that if you're trying to get on a reading plan at the beginning of the year. Hopefully we'll help with that. We're also going to talk about some sort of Bible studies that we're going to do throughout the church in small groups for the new year, if you would like to be a part of that. Uh, they're sort of organic and small, and so we're going to talk about that as well uh, at the new year. We talk about Bible memorization, just a number of things about the Scripture that I think will be, uh, I hope will be really helpful to you. And uh, then we're going to have an ordination service, uh, and we're going to talk about elders and do ordination, and then we're going to launch into, in February, the book of G- Genesis, and we're going to start at the beginning and uh, talk about Genesis. We have already got... We, Early in the life of the church did chapters 12 through 50, so we're not going to redo that because there's still plenty of people who were around back then that are still around, Um, but we are going to do chapters 1 through 11, which sets the course for... Uh, well, basically all of history, uh, all of the history of the world. So anyway, we'll be uh, looking forward to that. So let's, um, let's look in Revelation 3, and today we're reading about the church in Philadelphia. Um, if you're new to the Bible, this is like 2,000 years old. This isn't like in the U.S., the church at Philadelphia. This is, uh, this is historic, uh, a city named uh, because it was named after a guy named Attalus, and Attalus was known to have a great, true story, great love for his brother. And so they named it the city of brotherly love, the city of brother love, because of Attalus, uh, who I, I don't know if he's a Greek or what, but he, he loved his brother. And that's how they named the city Philadelphia uh, back in uh, a couple, several thousand years, a couple thousand years ago. Okay, here we go. Verse 7, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut, and I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we pray for that, what that verse says, that he who has a spirit, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we ask you to give us an ear. Uh, Lord, many of us are, have uh, 
perhaps holiday grogginess as we gather here today. We're perhaps distracted uh, with all that's going on. Uh, We have perhaps looking for things that we have to do afterwards later today or whatever. We just ask, God, that you would give us focus and clarity and that the Spirit would help us hear not only what you were saying to the church at Philadelphia initially, um, but you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us as well today. We believe that your word speaks, that it is life, that it is transforming. So Spirit of God, come and anoint the study of your scripture today that we might be transformed by your power. We ask you to speak to us, and we ask not only that we would hear, but that you would grant us grace to be doers of what we hear. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, normally we've looked at each of these uh, letters of each of these churches, and I've just kind of walked through verse by verse. I'm going to let you know ahead of time, I'm not going to cover every detail uh, of what is written to this particular church in Philadelphia. I'm going to focus on a few of the verses, which I think are the heart of the passage today. I was thinking this week, uh, and uh, uh, what is the most commonly sung song in the church? In the U.S. evangelical church, what would be the most familiar church song? And so I did a survey, sample group of one, interviewed myself, and said, this is what I think about that. Uh, It could be Amazing Grace, right? We sang that this morning. That was the first song we sang this morning. Some might say Amazing Grace would be the most commonly sung song in evangelical churches in the U.S., but I was thinking about that. Like a church that, a typical evangelical church might sing that, I don't know, three times a year. If you really love it, that's like your go-to, the song of the church, maybe six times a year. I don't know, a crazy church, eight times a year. So maybe that would be it, Um, but I, I don't think that's the actual answer. I think the most commonly sung song in the church is found down the hall. Because you may sing Amazing Grace if you're an extraordinary church or some other hymn eight times a year. But in that three and four year old class, nine out of ten Sundays, somebody's singing Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Is that right? That everyone is singing. That song is fantastic. And that song goes with what I want to communicate, what, what I believe what Jesus communicates from this text today. Uh, most commonly, uh, commonly sung song, I think, in the U.S. church. And if we believed what it taught as adults, we'd be a lot better off. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right there, doctrine of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of Scripture. How do we know truth? How do we know about Jesus? Is it because what I feel? Is it because of what I think? Is it was how I like to imagine him? No, it's because of what the Scripture tells me. So it's sound right off the bat. The revelation of Christ comes from the Bible. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. But that line, they are weak, but he is strong, is phenomenal. That kids are being taught to sing at the youngest age, you are weak. Even in a culture which would not want to tell anybody they're weak, especially the children, and damage their, their frail psyche with, uh, with believing negative things that could hinder their self-esteem and the development. We wouldn't want to sing, you are weak. We wouldn't want to sing, uh, you possess inherent strength which will be developed as you grow older, and he is also strong. That's how we'd probably want to sing it in our culture. But we are, they are weak, and he is strong. 
And something happens at some point as we're developing and growing up, we don't want that message anymore. Nobody wants to be told they're weak. Nobody wants to be, that's an insult. Nobody, no Christian wants to be told that they're, they're a, weak, a weak person. And so we try to put on an air of strength. We try to put on an air of capability. We try to put on an air of intelligence. We try to put on an air of power. We try to put on an air of, of discernment and know and knowledge and all this kind of stuff. Instead of just saying what we learned in Sunday school, if you were a church kid, what you learned in Sunday school, they are weak, we are weak, but he is strong. And there's a power in acknowledging our weakness because we will never see the strength of Jesus until we see our weakness. And until we embrace our weakness. And here's the amazing thing, that Jesus isn't opposed to human weakness. It's just true that we're weak, and Jesus is all about the truth. But on the contrary, as this passage teaches us, Jesus blesses human weakness. He's not opposed to human weakness. Jesus blesses the person that is weak with his strength. Jesus empowers the person that acknowledges his weakness with his strength. There's seven churches that we're studying, and only two of the churches, this is amazing, only two of them get no critique and no rebuke from Jesus. All of the churches, Jesus says, talks about some of their strengths and some of their weaknesses, but two churches receive no rebuke, no correction at all. And it's Philadelphia and it's Smyrna. It's two churches that were weak and suffering. Two churches that were weak and suffering, those are the two churches that Jesus reserves, uh, withdraws all critique of whatsoever. Jesus runs to the weak. He embraces, he commends weak people and weak churches. And I think that this passage that we're going to study today teaches us this, that God uses the faithful, not the strong. Because this passage is going to teach us that the Lord is going to use this church in a powerful way. But God uses the faithful and not the strong. Let's look at this church's setting. So I want to talk about this church's setting. I want to talk about the church's character. And then I want to talk about the church's savior and see what promises the Lord makes to them. First of all, the church's setting. They are a weak church. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I know you have little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not determined, uh, not denied my name. They have little power. They are weak. Now, he's not talking about their spiritual condition. Because what does he say? I know you have little power, but you've kept my word. That's strength. You've obeyed, you've believed, you've received my word, you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. They have tremendous spiritual power, but he says you have little power. What does he mean? Well, they're probably a small church. They're probably an insignificant church. That They're not making headlines in Philadelphia. Everybody's not talking about this amazing church. They're not a church of great notoriety. Their city is not impressed with them. They're they're probably a small church with little power, perhaps little influence, perhaps little say in their community. And yet, he, he commends them. They were also in a city that was experiencing a population decline. 
The area of Philadelphia was situated kind of next to a, a plain that, ha, uh, that was, uh, that was a, uh, a volcanic area. So there was a lot of seismic activity. The entire city was destroyed in 17 AD. This is probably written in the late uh, 90s, depending on when you date Revelation, but perhaps in the mid-90s rather. But it had been destroyed uh, in 17 AD, and they had rebuilt the city, but there was so much seismic activity that many of the people just were leaving the city and moving out to, a, to live in more of a fertile plain area nearby. So they were a declining city. P- people were leaving. They are an unimpressive church in likely a dwindling city. They live in a place that is not a place of destination, but a place of departure. So think of it this way in our terms. They're like maybe Detroit. People are leaving. There's open, there's empty houses um, and that sort of thing. And they're not just the city of Detroit, but they live in a small, insignificant church with minimal knowledge, notoriety. They, are, they don't have much power. They don't have much power. They're also a persecuted church. Verses 9 and 10 say, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Same thing was happening in Smyrna. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there are people uh, attached to the synagogue here that say they are Jews, they say they are God's uh, people, but they really are not. They're more acting like Satan. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're accusing the church Christians. So they're acting in opposition to God's people. They're acting in, in opposed to them. And uh, at least in Smyrna, they were speaking ill about them and slandering them. So something probably similar is happening here. They are a, uh, a persecuted church. So I want you to think about this church, just these couple of these first three verses. What do we learn? They're, they're weak. They're largely unknown, probably. They are opposed, for sure. They are suffering. They're in an unpopular town where people are leaving. I wonder how many of us would be impressed with that church. I wonder how many of us would seek that church out. Where do you want to go to church? Let's go to a dilapidated town, to a weak, unknown church where there's a lot of suffering and opposition. Sign me up. Who's, who's going to that church? How many of us would be drawn to that church? And here's the thing. Jesus is drawn to that church. Jesus commends that church. He has plenty to say about other churches. And next week we're going to find out he's talking about spewing some people out of his mouth in Laodicea. He's got plenty to say to other churches, but this church of weak people, weak church, he, he, he commends them. How many of us would stay in that church in that city? Jesus stayed. He's with them. He is among them. See, it's an upside down kingdom. The values of Jesus are different than the values of the world. Something for us here, I believe, something for us to consider. Listen to these words about Philadelphia. I read this. I thought it was just expressed really well by Sam Storms. He writes the following, saying to Philadelphia, this church, in spite of your lack of size and influence, says Jesus, you faithfully kept my word. And in the face of persecution and perhaps even martyrdom, you refused to deny my name. People threatened you. The culture mocked you. The Jewish community slandered you. The temptation to jump ship must have been intense, yet you stood firm. 
Your lack of resources, your lack of money, your lack of manpower proved no obstacle to your accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God. He goes on, it's reassuring to know that size is no measure of success. As I've noted before, there is no sin in size, but neither is there in smallness. So he's talked earlier about how there's no sin in, in, uh, in, in being a, a large group of people or a small group of people, neither one. The temptation, there are temptations in both. Those with little power can become bitter and resentful of those who outwardly prosper. Those with great power can become arrogant and condescending toward those of less stature. The many church may be tempted to think they've missed the mark or failed to articulate a vision that is pleasing to God. The mega church may point to their sizable offerings and overflowing crowds as indicative of divine approval. They could both be wrong. We don't know if the Christians in Philadelphia were despondent or mired in self-doubt, but the fact that Jesus applauds their efforts in spite of their modest dimensions would suggest that they needed this word of encouragement. We don't know, but that's a fair speculation. Based on how he's speaking to them, perhaps they needed to be encouraged that Jesus is applauding and commending and celebrating their faithfulness even in the midst of difficulty in their city. This is, this is such a distance from our thinking. Every, every article that I see, uh, that, and, I, and I, I see these pointed out, especially in social media, and I look them up and read them, any article that I see about our city uh, and its ranking, whenever there's ranking of cities in Texas or cities in the U.S., we are always on there. I mean, we always are the fastest growing cities. We're always on that list, whether it's Texas or the U.S. And sometimes we've even had top spot. Fastest growing cities, Frisco. Best place to live. These magazines do these surveys. The best places to live. I don't know what all the criteria are. Usually it's safety, cost of living, American dream stuff. Best place to live. We're always ranked in there. Philadelphia would have never made that list for sure. Best place to live. Best place, I actually saw one study that Frisco was the best place in the U.S. to raise an athlete. And uh, you don't have to go, you don't have to walk 100 yards outside of here to see that, that, that there's a lot for budding athletes in our city. Best, play, best schools Ranked best schools. I recently read a study. This is not a joke. True. They ranked the snobbiest cities in Texas, and we made that list too. (laughs) Because we're reading all the other lists that say, you're great. And now we made the most arrogant list. Which, by the way, you don't want your city or your church or your life to show up on the most arrogant, uh, the the most, the proudest city. That's just, uh, that's not good. But we're on that list too. Uh, you know, all the talk now is about what's happening at the tollway and Warren heading north. They're calling that section there the $5 billion mile. Within a mile, there's $5 billion of development coming real soon and uh, being anchored by the Cowboys' uh, development there. Certainly a very humble organization that would uh, never... <clears throat> As is the fan base, and, and I, I count myself among the uh, congregants of that fan base, and I use the congreg- word congregant intentionally, but uh, yes, we are part of that as well. 
So we're, con- here's, if you read media anywhere, we are constantly told that we are the land of growth, we're the land of opportunity, we're the land of what's happening, we're the latest, we're the greatest, we're the newest, we're the shiniest, we're the most fit, we're the most beautiful, uh, we're the wealthiest, we're whatever the list is, that's us. That's us. That's, where, or, or, that's what you read. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty about living in Frisco. I live in Frisco. I'm not making anybody trying to feel bad about that. I love our city. I am grateful for what God is going to do and is doing in our city. And I'm grateful that he's put our church here because I believe we're to be here for the good of our city. But how about a little reality check? I mean, this ain't how the world lives. North Texas, North Dallas in particular, we're living the exception to the rule. We're not living the rule here in terms of outward circumstances. This is not reality. And so for us to get ourselves in the mind of the church at Philadelphia and the values that the Lord is commending there and what they are experiencing, it's a really long bridge to get back there and to understand that. But if we can make that bridge and see what's being communicated about a value system here that the Lord honors, we will be very blessed by that. We need a long bridge, but the Lord will help us understand because this passage teaches us what Jesus loves about his church, what he commends about his church. And our mindset about the church often mirrors our culture. It often mirrors our culture. We want a Christianity that is safe, like here. We want a Christianity that is big, We want a Christianity that is growing. We want a Christianity that is impressive, that is wealthy, that is exciting, that is filled with opportunities. And that sounds a lot more like a brochure for Frisco than it does the description of the New Testament church. Because that's not what they experienced in the church of Philadelphia. It wasn't shiny and happening and blowing and going and, and, and people writing up about their city and their church. It wasn't like that. And we live in a land of great blessing. I'm so grateful for the blessing that's in front of us and, and that we've experienced historically. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm not bashing where we are. I want to be an ambassador for where we are. I want to invite people to where we are. I love where we are. But we do need to ensure that our mindset is like that of Christ and not like that of the hype that surrounds us. We want to keep our eye on the one who is a blessing and see what's important to him. Well, what's important to him is the church's character. The church's character. Look what, look what we find out about this church's character. They've been faithful to God's word. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Jesus is saying, I know what you have been through. This is just the words of compassion. I know what you have been through. I know the difficulty you endured. That's what's behind that phrase. It's not lost. I mean, Jesus isn't some distant figure who just got a report on how's it going down in the church of Philadelphia. I know. He says at the beginning, I'm walking among the lampstands. I'm in the church. I'm walking the aisles. I know what you have been through. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door. We'll talk about that in a minute, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. <clears throat> You've been faithful to my word. That's what the Lord highlights about him. That, that is precious. Some of the other statistics, uh, that may impress people. 
But people look on the outside. God looks on the heart. That's what we find out in Scripture. And the Lord is honored and blessed when the Spirit produces in a heart and in a church a people who are faithful to his word, a people who respond to his word. So they are in a place where there's a temptation to compromise, but they have not compromised. They've been persecuted. Perhaps people have scoffed at the message of the cross And they haven't compromised the message of the cross to win a hearing. That they haven't gone into some kind of prosperity theology to tickle people's ears, to draw them in when things are really bad. They've been faithful when things are bad, and they've been faithful to God's word. They've been faithful in their practice. Kept my word doesn't only mean doctrinal fidelity. That doesn't mean that they just believe the scripture. It means they've acted on it as well. They've had faithful practice. They've been obedient to God. They're commended because they've followed the scripture. The Bible has mattered to you. My word has mattered to you when life isn't a party, when your city's not a party, when your church life's not a party, when your personal life's not a party, when you're being resisted by those who say they know God, the the Jews in this case, when you've been resisted by by them, they've they've remained faithful to his word. Think about keeping God's word. You've kept my word. That's not always a glamorous, that's not always a glamorous picture. It's not always flashy to keep God's word because they've kept God's word at a cost, at a cost. But Jesus is honored. Jesus is blessed by that. Kept my word. Many of us are planning to, and this is a good thing. I don't want to critique this at all. Many are planning on starting the new year, and maybe you're going to do a few things. Maybe you're, this is the year you're going to get in shape. This year you're going to exercise. This year you're going to eat right. Those, that's pretty common. Uh, this is the year you're going to get, your bud, get out of debt, get your budget, uh, you know, working right, be faithful in your spending. That's a pretty common goal at the first of the year. Uh, but a very common goal among Christians is this is the year I'm going to take seriously the spiritual disciplines. This is the year. I've been a Christian a long time. I'm getting a Bible this year. And I am going to read it, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to, you know, that's a good thing. That is a really good thing. And as a matter of fact, there is nothing done on a regular basis that I think can make a greater difference in our Christian lives than that. Nothing. They're commended for being faithful to the word. What does that mean? What well, means they knew the word. It means they read the word. It means they believed the word. They probably memorized the word. It means that it was a part of their life in terms of their faith and their obedience. So there's nothing that you can do in the new year that'll make a bigger difference in all areas of your life, in all areas of your life, than regular exposure to the scripture, daily reading, regular reading of the scripture, and then thinking about it, meditating, applying it to your life, and seeking to respond to what you read, there'll be nothing that'll make a bigger difference. It'll affect every area of life because we see God, we understand God, we know God, and he empowers us to change. The Spirit empowers us to change as we study and seek to apply his word, as we keep his word. So that's a daily thing. I mean, that's like a regular regular practice that's not showy, not glamorous, can be costly, can be dry and boring sometimes. You think, man, I don't see anything happening out of this. That's what it could be like. But Jesus comes and said, you've kept my word. They have read, studied, believed, obeyed. And the Lord shows up and says, this is wonderful. This is, one, this is pleasing to me. 
They've been faithful to God's word. They've been faithful to his name. Verse 8 says, you have not denied my name. So they were being persecuted. Perhaps there was, we don't read anything directly about martyrdom like we do in some of the other uh, letters. But they certainly could have had that kind of, that level of intensity. Certainly family rejection certainly could have cost them in their job and in their work. Certainly it was costly to follow Jesus. They could have been talked badly about. They could have been... Uh, you know, written out of the will, rejected by the family, so to speak, that kind of stuff. But they've been faithful even when it would cost them. God gave them boldness to stay true. So faithful to God's word, faithful to his name. They've been faithful during trials. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This is how the NIV says it. Because you have kept my command to endure patiently. Christ commends them because they have endured hardship. They've been patient and they've walked through difficulty and hardship. And the Lord commends them for that. that that's what makes, in the Lord's eyes, that what, that's what makes a glorious Christian life. When someone suffers and remains true to Christ. That's what makes a glorious church. Whether it's a church of 10,000 or a church of 20. It does not matter. Either way, that church, if they stay true to the Lord during difficulty, that brings the Lord great honor. You've been faithful during your trials. I, I want to encourage some of you this morning. I'd like to encourage all of you, but I think this is to a specific group of people, if you allow me to pastor you for a few minutes here. I want to encourage some folks in the church who are coming to the end of the year, and you're saying, I, I just made it. I just made it. It was up to my neck. I made it by, uh, I'm just, I just slid through and made, I'm so glad this year is over. I'm looking forward to 2015 and believing something new. I, I, this was a year that was terrible for me. And you could recount what happened. Significant sickness, significant financial catastrophe in your life, significant relational upheaval. Somebody betrayed you. Someone left you. Someone harmed you. Uh, you lost your job. Um, you just look through the year and it went, it was just bad. You were depressed. You suffered depression. You had a series, maybe you still are, but you suffered a series uh, of while, a period when you were in a depression, uh, where you were confused, where you couldn't think straight. You were lonely. Um, you, you felt rejected by those who you thought were your friends. Um, it just didn't work well. You didn't get the promotion. You got demoted maybe. Work was, it just went from bad to worse. Maybe you started, you lost your job in the middle of the year and you're still unemployed. Man, it was just a terrible year. I can't wait to get out of 2014. We tend to think, how did our year go? When we look at our circumstances, that's not what the Lord looks at. The Lord didn't say, you lost your job. Oh, what am I going to do? That's a terrible year. I mean, he, he's compassionate. He cares about our losses, but he, he views it very differently. Because to this church, he commends them. Why? Because they were faithful. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Because you have kept my command to endure patiently. There are some of you in the room that you had real difficulty this year. But you know what? You're still here. You're still praying. You're here this morning singing the songs. You had a bad year and you're singing Amazing Grace. You're singing about the grace of God. This morning, you're listening to the word of God. You care. You want to honor the Lord. 
You did keep his word this year. You had your ups and downs. We all did. But you stayed true to the scripture. You, you, you followed the Lord. You loved the Lord. Ups and downs for sure. There were some seasons that were bad. And, but, but you ended up the year, you were faithful. You look at the year, you loved the Lord. You followed the Lord. You read your Bible. You did what you knew to do, even though it was really bad. And the Lord looks at 2014, and here's what he says about your 2014. The Lord says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, the Lord commends you because you endured and you were patient. Not 100%. I'm not, nobody's perfect, so don't count yourself out of this because, oh, well, I was that one day or that one week or that one month. Yeah, everybody, nobody's perfectly patient except Jesus. But overall, you were here. You endured. You prayed. You asked others to pray for you. You, you hung in there, and that pleases the Lord. We think the bad year is when bad things happen to us. And the truth is, you could have a great year circumstantially, and the Lord could look and say, that was a bad year. You know, I gave you a girlfriend, I gave you a spouse, I gave you a baby, I gave you a promotion, I gave you a new house, I gave you a new job, I gave you a new church, and it, with all that I gave you, just became more and more self-sufficient and didn't look towards me in it all. The Lord would say, that's a very bad year, circumstantially great. But the reality is, I didn't grow closer to the Lord, I grew more self-sufficient. That's a bad year. And we want to get past that year and repent and have a great 2015 or we can get some good trials and trust the Lord, you know. Uh, but th- that, that's a, just a different, different view than we have. So there's some who think, oh man, I just made it. It's, I just en- endured. I just barely hung on. But you are here and the Lord is honored by your service. The Lord loves you. The Lord sustains you and the Lord is blessed by your praise offering and by your seeking him in the midst of just being trashed this year. We need the Lord's perspective, so be encouraged if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you've endured and made it to the end of the year. Endurance is one of the most undervalued uh, qualities in the Christian life. We think life is great, and they're a gr- they have a great life if we avoid trials, if we go around trials. But the Bible says... That the, 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 great, the good life is not getting around the trials. The good life on this planet is walking through the trials and holding on to the Lord, him holding on to us and walking with him in the difficulty. That's the good life. That's your best life now. There are people with cancer that are having their best life now because they're close to the Lord. There are people who lost their job that are having their best life now. And there are people that are healthy, making a ton of money, that in God's economy are having their worst life now because they're blessed circumstantially, but the blessings are distancing them from Jesus. Endurance is, the Lord commends. If you read these, if you read chapters two and three, and many of you have, because we've been studying together. If you read chapters two and three, what you will find is over and over, perseverance is commended. Perseverance. You were faithful, even unto death. It's the, true, it's the same is true for a church. Churches are built just like lives are built. Through trusting God in difficulty and through celebrating God in blessing. Looking to God in all of it. But churches are built just like individual lives are built. And yet none of us are looking for none of, Nobody's looking for the church at Philadelphia. Nobody's putting on their website, come, suffer with us. We got problems. 
you think your church has got ornery people. Why don't you come visit our church? Yeah, you want to yeah, see some people with attitudes, come, come see us. Join when nobody is saying, yeah, we're, we're working out a lot of conflicts right now. Come on in. Nobody is saying that. We're being persecuted. People are opposing us. Want to join? Nobody's advertising that kind of stuff. And because just like in life, in church life, we do the same things. When things aren't going well, man, we just don't want to be a part of that. When the sacrifices outweigh the blessings, we just, hey, I'm out. I'm out. And what happens in life and in church and everything else, if if we don't embrace the sacrifices, we'll never experience the true blessings of the spiritual life in Christ. That's what they're commended for, patient endurance. Endurance means you had to go through something. Endurance means you had to stay true when quitting looked like a better option. Endurance means you had to cry out to God when you had nothing in you. You had to cry out in desperation. That's endurance. And patience means that you just continued to do it for a while, leaning on the Lord. Patient endurance. Come join our church. We'll give you an opportunity for patient endurance. Nobody, we're just not looking for that. We're not looking for that. But the Lord is. The Lord's looking for that in our lives and in our church. Well, let's look at the church's promise. What promise does he make to them? Jesus makes bold promises, and he does it through three images. A key, a door, and a pillar. A key, a door, and a pillar. Here is the key, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the triune one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The first thing he does is turn their eyes to him. Jesus says, look at me. I'm faithful. I'm true. I'm holding a key. So the image to this church is look at Jesus. It starts with looking at him. And he is the one who is holding a key. He is holy and true, and he has the key of David. He commends them for faithfulness, yet he is the only one who's ultimately faithful. Jesus is the only one who is ultimately faithful. And we are right with God because of his faithfulness. Because he faithfully honored his father, because he faithfully went to the cross, because he faithfully took our sins upon himself and expressed the father's love for us, because he faithfully loved us and sacrificed himself. We now, through faith in him, if we turn from our sin and believe in him, we receive uh, eternal life. And so he is the faithful one. He is the true one. That is, he's true to his word. He has integrity. He's true to word. He is the faithful one. He is the true one. I mentioned the idea behind this is God uses the faithful, not the strong. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the cross? That Jesus is faithfully on the cross, loving us by giving himself for us. And he appears to be utterly weak because he's not using his strength. He's foregoing it and willingly sacrificing himself. He looks like utter weakness, but God uses the faithful and not the strong. And God used his son to draw us to himself and to save us. So Jesus, the faithful one, he's holding a key. He has the key of David. Key represents authority. You got a key, that's an authority. And of David, David is the great king of the Old Testament who ruled over a kingdom. So Jesus holding a key that is the key of David means that he has authority over the kingdom. 
He has authority to let people in the kingdom. He has authority to, to ban people from the kingdom. He has the key who opens, no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. He has absolute authority over his people and absolute authority to bring people in to his people. So it doesn't matter what they say at the local synagogue about them. It doesn't matter if they're being persecuted in Philadelphia. Jesus holds the key, and he says who's in the kingdom. He has authority. Doesn't matter if you're being slandered. Doesn't matter what people say about you in Philadelphia. Doesn't matter if your family's critiquing you for your faith in Jesus. Doesn't matter if your coworkers mock you because you love the Lord. Now, if you're obnoxious, that's a different thing. Don't be obnoxious. But if you're humble and loving and honoring Christ and standing up for Jesus and being bold in a winsome way, if you're doing that and experiencing rejection, it does not matter what anybody thinks. Because there's one person who has a key to the kingdom, and it's Christ. And so he says he has authority. He calls him to look to him. And the next picture is a picture of a door. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door and no, which no one is able to shut. So not only does he have a key, but he's got an open door in front of them. Open door is a wonderful metaphor that we find numbers of places in the New Testament. And it almost always refers to a door of opportunity for, to communicate the gospel, to preach the gospel, to spread the gospel. It's, an, it's, a, it's almost always tied to mission. In, uh, in, for instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So there's always a wide, wherever there's a wide door, there will be adversaries. But that's what he says. Or in Colossians 4, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am is in prison. So Jesus is communicating to this church, there is an open door. I'm going to do something among you. You have been faithful uh, you have held on to me, you have held to my word, even though you've been persecuted and you have little power, but I'm about to do something. Regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their limited strength, regardless of a city in decline, regardless of persecution, there's coming a season of life in this church that will be characterized by an open door. This church will have gospel witness opportunities that Jesus, who holds the key, will work. Matter of fact, he says that the Jews who are a synagogue of Satan, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. He's going to convince some of them. Even some of the persecutors will come, bowing down to feet. They're not going to worship them, but it's a sign of, uh, in the ancient areas of respect, that kind of a thing. They're going to bow down, and they're going to know that I loved you, which is probably an implication that some of them are going to get converted. So even those who are opposing you, I'm going to bring some of them in. I have authority. You stay faithful. You worry about, you know, walking with me and I'll worry about, not really worry, but I'll be consumed with opening doors for you. The faithful church stands before an open door. Why? Because they had a great strategy because they had a great plan for reaching the declining city. Nothing wrong with a strategy, but that's not why. Well, all they did was stay faithful. They just stayed faithful to the word. They just opened the Bible and read it and sought by God's grace and God's power to do what it said. And when they failed, they asked forgiveness, got back up on the horse and said, Lord, help us ride some more. They just kept his word. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't amazing. Everybody didn't say, did you see what they, they just stayed faithful in secret. They just stayed loyal when challenged. They just 
owned their relationship with Christ when persecuted. They just followed when it was costly. They just day in, day out, just obeyed his word. And the Lord says, now I've got authority. Look at me because I've got an open door. And as a matter of fact, those who are persecuting you will be at your feet and they'll say, they will say that Jesus loves you. They will say that I've loved you. That's what he says. He not only opens a door, but he calls them to look at it. Verse eight, behold, I have set before you an open door. Look at the door, he says. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your problems. Don't look inward. Don't be consumed by the opposition and the difficulties of your circumstances. Look to me. I hold the key. And secondly, look at the door. Look at the opportunity. This is, Jesus does this in John 4 as well. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are right, ripe for harvest. So he starts the passage, look at me. Hold the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom. I'm true and holy. Secondly, look at the opportunity around you and look what I'm going to do. It's a wonderful passage. God uses the faithful, not the strong. God doesn't say I'm going to use you because you're strong. God doesn't say I'm going to use you because you're wealthy, because you have talents, because you have a superior Bible knowledge. He doesn't say the one who knows the most is the one I'll use the most. He doesn't say the most beautiful, the most popular, the most gifted. He says the faithful. He uses the faithful who are weak and humble and often unimpressive and perhaps not articulate. And maybe even a little awkward. God forbid he could use an awkward person. Amazing. God uses faithful people. He uses the small, the weak, and he delights to use those who the world would look down upon. That's who he likes to use because it shows his strength. He's not saying you're the, you're the coolest And so, of course, everybody would be attracted to you in Philadelphia. You're the most stylish. You're the most cutting edge. You're the most contemporary, relevant, whatever the categories are. And I'm not arguing for irrelevance and being out of style or something like that. There's nothing holy about that either. It's just you just we don't rely on those externals. We don't rely on those. Seek to be faithful and trust the Lord. And he opens the door. That's what he says to a weak people in a weak church. And I believe there's a very explicit application for us today. You may feel like some of the people there, not very flashy, not very amazing. People are not walking up to you and singing, everything is awesome. I saw the movie. I didn't think the movie's that awesome. I know everybody else did, but I thought everything's not awesome, starting with the last two hours that I just invested here. But that's just me. I don't mean to offend. I know a lot of people liked it. but um, everything's not awesome. And so people aren't walking up and saying, you're awesome, you're amazing, how can I be like you? Could you sign my Bible? I mean, people aren't doing that to you. And they go, I don't don't have all the answers, and I mess up a lot. I'm pretty inconsistent in some some areas, but I'm I'm, I'm seeking, I'm leaning on the Lord, but if you look at my track record, I'm not perfect. I've still got areas of my life that are really need to be fixed and worked on by the Lord. And um, I, I, I don't think that I could really be used. There's other people. I'm an introvert. God uses extroverts. I'm an introvert. I don't think the Lord could use me. Or I'm not a magnetic personality. I don't think the Lord... 
none of that's in here. Where did he say, I'm opening a door because your church is 80% extrovert, and at least two-thirds of you are really good-looking, and I looked at your bank accounts, and a lot of you are wealthy, and you got good jobs. I did a little survey. At least half of you are superior athletically, and man, you guys are just wonderful. He doesn't say anything like that. You're big. You're amazing. It's happening. How could I not bless with the programs you are offering in Philadelphia? <laughs> Who, how could I? I'm, I'm compelled to bless your creativity and ingenuity. Nothing wrong with being creative. It's just wrong to rely upon it. Look at what he says, I'm coming. You're weak. You don't have any power. But you know what? I got a key. I rule the kingdom. I say who gets into the kingdom. And, and, and I got an open door for you because I use the faithful not the strong. And he gives this last, and he really end right here. He, he gives this last picture of the pillar, verses 10 to 13. Verses 10 to 13. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that, you, so that no one may seize your crown. Don't disqualify yourself into the words. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he closes with this picture of heaven. He says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And as part of the new Jerusalem, here's what you're going to be. Right now, you're unknown, you're insignificant. You're going to be a pillar. You're going to be a pillar. What does that mean? You're going to, the, the, the temple is really the people of God. You're going to be a pillar in that. You're going to always be in my presence. You're going to always be near me. You're going to be, your life is, is uh, for eternally, you will be in my presence. And you'll never go out of the temple again. You will be safe and secure. So a number of commentators say it's a picture of security because in Philadelphia with the frequent earthquakes, uh, masonry would fall. People just would run out of the city wait till things are over, till it settles, then they'd come back in. They were always at a regular part of for safety running out of their city. He gives a promise, there's a time when you will never go out. You will always be among the people of God. You will be with me, secure in my presence. The Bible always gives a vision of eternity to suffering people. Always a hope for the presence of Jesus, the personal presence of Jesus for the suffering. Always a looking forward to, it's tough now, but you just wait. You have no idea what's coming and how glorious it's going to be. Don't check out because everything that's being offered here is a fake. And the the real is in Christ and you're going to see him and experience it in eternity. So he gives them that eternal picture. So what does he say to this church? Well, he shows them that that he uses the faithful and not the strong. So we're called to see his strength. That's the opening picture, the one who is true and faithful. We are to see our own weakness, not hide our weakness, not to try to give an impression that we're something. We're not embrace our weakness. Celebrate. Paul celebrated his weakness. Celebrate our weakness. Lead with our weakness. So see his strength, see our weakness, receive his strength, and through his strength, seek to, seek to be faithful to his word. Simple, small things. Seek to be faithful to his word and look for open doors. Look for open doors. Look for open doors. Yeah, I just felt to encourage some in the room who are coming to the end of the year and, and disparaging their last year and just encourage you that the Lord may have a very, very different evaluation of it. Um, and to also just encourage us to, where we are weak, to celebrate that by receiving his strength 
his strength for our weakness and to look where he is opening doors. And just to embrace the theology that you sang when you were four years old, little ones to him belong. We are weak. They are weak, but let's say we. We are weak, but he is strong. And God uses the faithful, not the strong. He is strong, and he chooses to use those who find their strength in him, acknowledging their own weakness. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.